Well, let's go ahead and take a seat, everybody, and as you're taking a seat, take your Bible as well, and let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Welcome to those of you who are online, those who are downstairs, we welcome you as well to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 to 26. That's our passage for today. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 to 26. And let me, let me start with this. As you're turning there, I heard in a podcast this last week that one of the great inventors and visionaries of our day died 10 weeks ago, 10, sorry, 10 years ago this week. So October 5th, 2011, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computer, died at the young age of 56. That was 10 years ago. It's hard to believe it's been that long. And then I hear, I see that age, 56. You know, when I was a kid, I thought 56 was like old as dirt. Now I'm like, 56, that's pretty young. Now, if you know anything about Steve Jobs, you know that he was a, a driven man who sometimes made other people crazy with his drivenness. That's pretty well documented. And part of that, I think, was Jobs' philosophy on life and death. Here's a quote from him that I heard this last week. You can read this on the screen. Job said this, death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Now there's wisdom in that statement, and I'm going to point out some of the wisdom in that statement. In fact, there's Ecclesiastes that agrees with some of what's written there. So I'm going to affirm some of what Jobs wrote here, but I'm also going to debunk what Jobs is writing here because there are two errors in this statement. There's an implicit error and there's an explicit error. I'm going to deal with the implicit error now. At the end of the message, I'm going to deal with the explicit error, okay? So stay tuned. And the implicit error is this. Here's essentially what Jobs is saying. Life is short. Death is coming. Work on something you love so that you don't waste it. And the implicit error to that, as Solomon addresses it in this book, is even if you do something great in your life, even if you start Apple computers, it's not really going to matter in the end because death will swallow you up and nobody will remember you. It's a very cheery message this morning. What Solomon does in this passage is he takes all that cheery optimism that that people try to motivate themselves with and, and... It's all bunk. He says it's all bunk. Death makes everything we do here futile. The old man Solomon says in this passage that all that positive, uplifting stuff that he wrote in Proverbs, all that constructive stuff isn't really going to matter in the end because death is coming for you. Death will render your life's work moot. So it's as if Solomon's saying, take that, Steve Jobs. Take this. Take, Take that young Solomon, even. Take that prosperity preacher with your power of positive thinking. Is there any hope for us in light of what Solomon writes here? Should we even try in life in light of what Solomon writes here? Yes, we should. But the only way you're going to find hope is to look beyond the under the sun existence that we live in right here. That's key as we interpret the book of Ecclesiastes. But before we get into all that, let's... let's debunk a little bit of Steve Jobs's quote. So write this down as number one in your notes. I'm calling this message today, Death Throws. 
And I want to give you four statements about death from Ecclesiastes 2. Here's the first. First, death is inevitable for humans. Death is racing towards you. Death is imminent for all of us. Death is inevitable for us as humans. Solomon says this in verse 12. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. If you remember from last week, Solomon tried all these things. He, 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 he did it all. He experienced it all. You know, and it didn't satisfy him. He had been there, done that, got the t-shirt. He tried it all. And it, and it left him as the richest man, the wisest man, the most successful, the most self-indulgent man who ever lived. It, lived. He's, it left him empty and unsatisfied. And the idea here in verse 12 is that you won't outdo Solomon. Don't even try. Don't even try to live a life of self-indulgence. He, he was married to 700 women. Don't even try that, okay? He tried all these things to, in chasing pleasure and even chasing wisdom, and it didn't work. What he did, you can't outdo. Solomon says in verse 13, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. It's better to be smart than stupid. Okay, this is pretty low-hanging fruit right here in verse 13. It's better to be wise than to be a fool. I saw that there's more gain in it, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. Why? Verse 14, the wise person has eyes in his head. The fool walks or stumbles about in the darkness. It's better to be smart than to be not smart. It's better to walk in the light than to walk in darkness. It's better to not be a fool, is what he's saying here, which is true. It's true, but listen here, careful now. Don't amen that too loud. I think the tendency here as we read this, we're like, amen, oh yeah, education. It's going to solve all our problems. Don't amen too loud here what he's saying here. You know why? Because he's setting you up for something. He's, He's setting a trap for you. Here's how it works. Verse 13, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than folly, as there is more gain in light than darkness. Yeah, yeah. Three cheers for wisdom. Down with folly, down with ignorance. We love this. Verse 14, the wise person has eyes in his head. The fool walks in darkness. Yes, yes. Education is the key to success. Then he says, verse 14, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. What? What now? What's he saying? He's saying that you can be wise or you can be a fool. And in the end, it's not really going to matter because the same event. What, what event is he talking about? The same result for your life. The same end is going to take place for you if you're wise or for you if you're a fool. That's, and, and this is clear Later. What he's talking about. What is the event that he's talking about? Look at verse 16. He doesn't say it explicitly here, but he kind of strings you along for another few verses. But at the end of verse 16, we know clearly, Solomon says how the wise dies just like the fool. In other words, you can't outwise your impending death. You can't outsmart the grim reaper. He's coming for you. And there's nothing you can do about it. The fool and the wise share the same fate. There's no avoiding it. The pauper goes to the same grave as the prince. How's that for cruel irony? They both end up six feet under. The wise man and the fool share the same destiny. Let me say it this way. The grim reaper is an equal opportunity reaper. He doesn't discriminate. Rich or poor, 
old young, he's, he's coming. Last week I spent some time with Hang and Conaday in D.C. And, you know, Hang's, he, he just took a job as a worship pastor in Fairfax, Virginia. So I went, I preached at his church, spent some time with him. It was really good. And while we were in D.C., we went to the Arlington National Cemetery, which is, I mean, that's a great thing for everybody to do. It's really an amazing thing. You have 400,000 Americans, mostly soldiers, buried there right in the middle of our nation's capital in this cemetery. And, and for me, this is a really special moment. And it's part of that is because I'm really fascinated by cemeteries. I hope that didn't creep you out, but I am. Cemeteries are fascinating to me. Because, I mean, what, what do you see there? What, what did I see at Arlington National? The, there's the four-star general, and he's buried right next to the private. You know, there's the Supreme Court justice, and she or he is buried right next to, to just a common soldier or a clerk. They're just all in there together, buried six feet under. And even JFK, you know, JFK, that's a big thing, and you go there, and it's, I mean, he's just as dead as everybody else there. And, and it's, it's a marvel here in this place. And, and, and I'm not trying to make light of 400,000 people, many of whom have given their life for our country But it's just a reminder to me as they are all under the ground that death is the great equalizer. And death is inevitable for all of us. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Not only is death inevitable, but death is the great leveler of humanity. Death is the great leveler of humanity. Solomon says in verse 15, that I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? You know, Solomon's depressed here. You know, why did I work so hard getting smart? And I said in my heart that this also is, it's hevel, it's vanity, it's fleeting. You know, when Sonny and I, we, we would go to Croatia, we would travel, there was this neighbor of her father-in-law's that would come and, and spend time with, with my father-in-law. And he would, you know, he, he was a very well-educated man, spoke something like seven languages, so he would converse with me in English, which was great, and, and it was very well-published, and, I mean, an incredibly intelligent man. He was one of these individuals, you guys know the type, that was really, really proud of how intelligent he was, right? And there was just kind of this, this pompous personality that he had that just exuded arrogance. And... I found out this last summer as I went to Croatia that he died. He died, and it kind of shook up my father-in-law. Because all of that pride, all of that learning, all of that stuff he knew, all of those languages went right into the coffin with him. And, and that intelligence, if you want to call it wisdom, your wisdom, my wisdom, if you want to change it up a little bit, you can't stay death's hand with that. Verse 16 for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. It's even worse than that. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. The Supreme Court justice is buried right next to the clerk. You know, the, the four-star general buried right next to other soldiers. And that, that was especially true at the Arlington National Cemetery for the, in the Civil War part, because they all had the same tombstone. You couldn't even tell. You had to look up close to see their laurels and to see what, they, what, what their rank was even. They're all buried together. They're all there, and, and they're forgotten. They're just names, you know? I, I think that's one of my fascinations with cemetery. I was, cemeteries. I was in one recently, and you just you go through and you read names. I don't know these people. Nobody really knows these people except maybe if it's your ancestor or something. 
and, and all they have is just a little blip, just a little statement about this person that's such a, that's all you know. You don't know if they're good, you don't know if they're bad, you don't know if they were, you don't know anything. And they're forgotten. Within a generation or two, you're forgotten. And Solomon says, verse 16, oh, how the wise dies just like the fool. That's it in verse 16. This is what Solomon has been hinting at for several verses. Now he just says it outright. The wise dies just like death. Death is the great leveler. Death is the great equalizer in life. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Doesn't matter what race you are, what ethnicity. It doesn't matter which side of the tracks you grew up on. We're all heading to the same place. There's this great scene in one of my favorite movies of all time. It's in this movie called Glory. Some of y'all might have seen this. It's a movie about the Civil War, and it's, it's, a, it's a moving film. It really is. Great movie, great cast, Matthew Broderick, Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman. And in this movie, Matthew Broderick, he plays this rich, white uh, colonel who uh, takes over this, this ragtag group of black officers, the first they're going to fight in the Civil War, the 55th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment, famous regiment. And so he trains them, and they, they fight together. They attack Fort Wagner in South Carolina, and they all die together in the movie. If you don't know this part of history, you should. They all die. And, and there they are, just kind of strewn, all the bodies on the, the beach in South Carolina. And there's a scene in this movie. It's one of the great cinematic move, moments in, in movie-making history. Because after they die, they pick up Matthew Broderick's character's body. It's Robert Gouldshaw, Colonel Robert Gouldshaw. And they throw him in this mass grave full of the African-American soldiers that he led. And then they throw another body, a black body on top of his. And there they are. They fought together. They died together. They're buried together. We're all headed to the same place. There's no discrimination in eternity. That's where we're all headed. It's so moving to think about that. And, and I hope you're bracing for that reality. There's another scene in history. There's a moment when the, the philosopher Diogenes, he's, he's looking through this pile of bones. And Alexander the Great, you know, the king of Macedonia, this great warrior who conquered all of these kingdoms, his dad was the king of Macedonia too. He was a great leader as well. So he sees Diogenes looking through this, this stack of bones, and he says, what are you doing? Alexander the Great says, what, what are you doing? Why are you looking through those bones? And Diogenes says, I'm looking for your father, King Philip, but I can't tell his bones from the bones of the slaves. They're all stacked in here together. And, and I'll just say, that's not all bad. There's something about that that we, we like as Americans, because in our founding documents, we have these great statements like all men are created equal. So we like the idea of princes being buried with paupers. We like the idea of the soldier being buried with the general. But I'll just tell you, for King Solomon, for an ancient king, this is intolerable, this idea. Look at verse 17. I hated life. This guy's depressed about this. I gotta be buried just like this other guy? So I hated life because of what is done under the sun it was grievous to me for all is vanity. A striving after the wind, King Solomon is frustrated because his kingship won't mean squat after he's gone. His wisdom will go right into the grave with him. 
And everything under the sun is vanity. We've heard that language before, right? Hevel, everything is chasing the wind. What's the point of life? What's the point of living a good life? If everything you accomplish goes right into the grave. Steve Jobs says your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Solomon says, oh yeah, Steve Jobs, it doesn't matter if you do, it doesn't matter if you don't. It doesn't matter. Your optimism is misplaced, Steve Jobs. Because all of your accomplishments won't mean diddly squat when death comes. It'll be null and void in there. It's vanity. You're chasing the wind. You're, You're just a nowhere man. Remember Nowhere Man, that Beatles song? He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. That's life under the sun and apart from God. I say, boy, Pastor Tony, this is terrible. It gets worse. Everybody ready to go to work tomorrow? Write this down as number three. Here's a new argument. Death benefits unworthy successors. This says Solomon up at night. Solomon says in verse 18, I hated all my toil. I hated my life. I hated my toil. I'm depressed in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. This, like I said, this is a new wrinkle in Solomon's argument. What's he saying here? He's saying, I do all this work, I do all this striving, and it's vanity, because I've got to give it when I die to somebody who didn't work for it. Verse 19, and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. It's 50-50. Actually, the odds are less than that with the Israelite kings. It's less than 50-50. Who knows he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my, and used my wisdom under the sun for this also is vanity. And we know this too. I mean, you don't have to be an ancient king to, to see this. Think of the trust fund babies who waste their parents' inheritance. That happens in our day. Think about the lousy kings in human history who take over for good kings or the lousy queens that take over for good queens. We see that in the British Empire. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, you know? Think about the great statesmen. Think about the transformative leaders throughout human history. Think about Winston Churchill, This great transformative leader, he had a son who was a complete disappointment, Randolph Churchill. You probably never even heard of him. He was a drunk, and he had all of Winston Churchill's foibles, but he had none of his grace, none of his charisma, none of his leadership ability. Think about John Adams, this great founding father. He had three sons. Did you know that? Three sons. John Quincy, Thomas, and Charles. You only ever hear about one. Two of his sons were fools, and they died early due to alcoholism. One son was wise, John Quincy Adams, sixth president of the United States, one of the great statesmen in American history. You just never know as you pass on your legacy to who comes next. I mean, you you really don't have to go into American history to see this. I mean, think about Solomon. I'm not so sure that Solomon's not being autobiographical here with what he's talking about. Because if you don't know, Solomon had a son whose name was Rehoboam, and his son was a fool. And he blew up the kingdom of Israel. When I was a kid, my pastor, he used to do this thing called the Old Testament walkthrough, and he would walk us through all the history of the Old Testament. This is when I fell in love with the Old Testament. 
And whenever he would talk about Solomon and what came after Solomon, he said that he would always say there are two bombs that went off after Solomon's reign. There was Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And that's how I learned and remembered Solomon's son, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, this, this son who was wicked and foolish and lost more than half of the kingdom of Israel. He blew it up with his idiocy. Ten tribes revolted from the kingdom of David's son, started the northern tribe of northern nation of Israel, two tribes, stayed with Rehoboam, became the southern tribe of Judah. That's why if you read the book of Kings, there's Israel and Judah both. They're two nations. If you read, if you read those kings too, you know it's a crapshoot. It's the next guy, the next king of Judah, going to be a good king or a bad king? That's a crapshoot when you look at the British Empire too. Verse 18, I hated all my toil, which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who comes after me. Who knows? Who knows? Whether he'll be wise or a fool. Look at verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair (laughs) over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person, just sometimes, who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill, in other words, Solomon, must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it, Rehoboam. This also is vanity and a great evil. I read yesterday that there was a Scottish baron who had amassed this great fortune. And very frugal, very wise in the way he stewarded his assets, and he bequeathed everything to his son. And the son of his, after he died, and the son had a fascination with the Loch Ness Monster in Scotland. So he spent his entire dad's fortune buying submarines and technology looking for the Loch Ness Monster. How do you think dad felt about that? Rolling over in his grave. It doesn't always happen. But it often happens. And by the way, can I just say something about this right now? This isn't in my notes, but let me just say something to those of you who are thinking this through. Don't leave a boatload of money to your kids when you die. Don't do that. It's going to ruin them. Make them work for it. Seriously. I've seen kids ruined by it. And, and I, know, I know later in Ecclesiastes it talks about giving an inheritance. Sure, give them an inheritance. But don't give them a ton of money. Make them work for it. It's good for them. What was I talking about? (laughs) Number four, write this down. Death is inevitable. Death is the great leveler. Death benefits unworthy successors. And then fourthly, death renders toil as transient. Death renders toil as transient. Solomon says in verse 22, let's finish this up. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun? What profit is there in all this? For all of his days, verse 23, are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Wow, that really gets me excited about going to work tomorrow. Is it Columbus Day tomorrow? Do we have to work? Some of you do. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. You can't even get a good night's sleep because you're thinking about work. True? It's a Genesis 3 world. Thorns and thistles, it gets in your sleep. 
I fantasized about sleeping like when I was a teenager all through the night. That was great. That was like 30 years ago. Steve Jobs says, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Solomon says, even if you do something great, even if you develop the iPhone and the iPad, even if you do that, your work on this side of eternity is transient, is not going to last. You know, it's funny about the iPhone. Steve Jobs, the Apple community, they presented these these technologies, especially the iPad, but the iPhone too, they, they presented them as this transcendent in, invention that would change the world. And it, it has changed the world. But it's well documented now that these inventions have actually made people dumber, not smarter. And especially with children, these devices can stem creativity, they can stem brain development, they cause attention deficiency, which makes them less innovative and less productive. In fact, I've read that Some Apple executives, including Jobs when he was alive, he wouldn't even let his kids use iPads or iPhones. He banned them in the house. And what an indictment. Like you spend your whole life developing this technology that's dangerous for your children. You're just chasing the wind. And in 50 years from now, that technology is going to be obsolete. Steve Jobs will just be some name out there that maybe some of you remember, like, like a factoid. I don't know if Jobs ever acknowledged before his death the irony of that. He'd spent his whole life developing a technology he wouldn't even let his kids use because it was dangerous for them. I don't know if he ever acknowledged that hypocrisy, that irony, but I do know there's, there's one productive member of society who was willing to admit the futility of the work that he did. I read a quote this last week by a man named Leonard Wolf. He's a British publisher and political theorist from, I think, 40s, 50s, 20th century. He's the husband of Virginia Woolf. That's probably what he's most famous for. And he said this about his life's work. You can read this on the screen. He said, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same as it is if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I must have in a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. That's depressing. Sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? According to Phil Reich in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, these are the words of a man, Leonard Wolf, who wrote more than 20 books on literature, politics, economics, yet in the end, it all seemed useless to him, a complete waste of time. Look at verse 24. Here's the conclusion of the matter. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. That's a fine confession right there. This also, says Solomon, is from the hand of God. Whoa, and God shows up finally. It's been going on for two chapters and didn't mention God. Now God shows up. And what does he say about God? There's nothing better in this life than to enjoy from the hand of God these things that he gives us. Why? 
For apart from him, verse 25, who can eat? Who can have enjoyment? All, in other words, all good gifts are from God. There's nothing that comes in this world that's not from God, so enjoy it while you can. This is Old Testament common grace. That's what this is. This is Old Testament common grace. All good gifts are from God. Enjoy them while you can. Verse 26, for to the one who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering, collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. It's better to be one who pleases God than a sinner. That's the argument here. But ultimately, this also is a vanity and a striving after wind. So just to be clear, it's better to be a God-fearer. It's better to please God. It's better to be not sinful, or let's just say less sinful than more sinful. But only for a while. God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. The sinner in this life gets the short end of the stick, but even that short-lived, it's all vanity in the end. It's all chasing after the wind. Why? Because death, death is racing towards you. Because death is the great equalizer. Because death doesn't discriminate against rich or poor, sinner or saint, male or female, foolish or wise. We all end up in the same predicament. The French humanist Voltaire, he said once, I hate life. I hate life. And yet I'm afraid to die. A French atheist and existentialist, Jean-Paul Sartre, he said this, you can read this on the screen. He said, life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. Life has no meaning. That's very French, isn't it? Just imagine like people smoking cigarettes talking about how depressing life is and making these existential statements. Life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. Great. More honestly, I think, the French novelist Francois Mariac, he said this. He said, you can't imagine the torment of having had nothing out of life and having to look forward to nothing but death, a feeling that there is no other world beyond this one that the puzzle will never be explained. The American filmmaker Woody Allen, he addressed this topic differently. Here's what he said. He said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality by not dying. It's very clever, isn't it? That's how we deal with serious subjects in America. We just tell jokes about it. We just laugh it off. Mark Twain said this once. Here's another example of that. I do not fear death, he says. I've been dead for billions and billions of years before I was born and had not suffered the slightest inconvenience from it. Yeah, right, Mark Twain. Tell your jokes. A little more seriously, the British author C.S. Lewis said this. He was less sanguine about death than Mark Twain. And by the way, he wrote this statement when he was still an atheist. So keep that in mind. This is before he became a Christian. And he was, as I read this, I, I see, you know, C.S. Lewis was angry at the God that he didn't think existed. Come, let us curse our master ere we die, for all our hopes in endless ruin lie. The good is dead. Let us curse God most high. 
Goodness. The Russian author Leo Tolstoy, he was struggling with thoughts of suicide when he was about 50 years old and he kept asking these existential questions, couldn't get them answered. He asked, what will come of what I am during, doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Here's my point. It doesn't matter if you're Russian. It doesn't matter if you're French. It doesn't matter if you're British. It doesn't matter if you're an American. You got to deal with death. It's coming for all of us. And, and listen up, Americans. You can't laugh this off like Mark Twain. You can't just tell jokes about it and think it's not going to happen. It will happen. Your death is imminent. What are you going to do about it? Let me go back to that Steve Jobs quote for a second because I'm going to agree with him, okay, in a few points. I'm going to agree with this quote, some of it, and then with everything that is in me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm going to disagree with something he says. What does he say? Death is the destination we all share. Everybody see that? Is that true? Yes, it is. Solomon says as much in Ecclesiastes. Death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. Your time is limited. Is that true? Is your time limited here on earth? Yes, it is. That's not just reinforced in Ecclesiastes. That's reinforced in the rest of the Bible. Psalm 103, verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. Yes, life is short. Yes, our time is limited. You know that even experientially. I was 20 years old yesterday. My son was born last week. I woke up today, I'm 42 and he's 14. When did that happen? How did that happen? Another day older, closer to death. So yeah, I agree with Steve Jobs, our time is limited. You know where he's wrong? Let's look in that quote, tell me where he's wrong. You know what I disagree with? Death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. Let me read that again. Death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. Is that true? Has anybody ever escaped death? Let me ask you differently. Of whom is this said? Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. Who's that talking about? Let's do that again. Of whom is this said? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Who's the he in there? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things that passed away. Revelation 21 verse 4. Who's that passage talking about? Let's do that again. This is fun. (laughs) Of whom is this said? For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Who's that passage talking about? How about you in the back? Y'all with us? Who's that passage talking about? Let's do it one more time. Who said this? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You know that old expression? Doesn't matter what question the pastor's asking, Jesus is the answer. Y'all ever heard that? Who said that, church? I am the resurrection and the life. Let me ask you a harder question. You can read this on the screen. Of whom is this said in the Bible? Okay? And the answer is not Jesus. So you've got to think about this one. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Who's that talking about? That's talking about us. It's talking about believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus has made a way for us to escape death. Jesus escaped death. He's made a way for us eternally to escape death. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Phil Riken says in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, there's a question for all of you right now. Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of death? Do you hate life? Do you ever worry that you will be forgotten? Are you discouraged by the vanity of your existence? Do you feel like you've been striving after the wind? Look above the sun to the Son of God. He will raise you up from the dead and will protect your life forevermore. Listen, Harvest Decatur, let me, let me just put a gospel close on this message, okay? We're all going to die, okay? Unless Christ comes back first, we're all going to die. And yet Christ has made a way through his death, through his resurrection, that we can escape the penalty of death forever. You know what? Jesus Christ makes your life meaningful. He makes your life livable. He makes your work meaningful and purposeful. He makes your life meaningful. You know what else he makes meaningful? Your death. Because your death is not the end. If you know Christ, you will be raised to new life in a new body, to live incorruptibly with him forever and ever and ever. 
Jesus Christ has made that possible for you. Put your faith in him, believe in him, follow him, serve him, live for him. Let him even post, I know most of you in this room, I know most of you, you're saved, okay. Live for him. We're all gonna be dead soon, live for him. And let the rest of your life be a testimony to God's goodness and his mercy in your life. And let's tell other people about it when we get the opportunity. Because otherwise, we're just circling the sun. And it's vanity of vanities, and we're chasing the wind outside of Christ. Live for him, serve him, find purpose in him. I'll close with this. I had a lot of quotes in today's sermon, I know. Some were good, some were not so good. I want to close with a quote, one of my favorites from the incomparable D.L. Moody. Moody said, one someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Norfield is dead. He's dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At the moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, gone out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body like unto his own glorious body. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born of the Spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever and ever. Have you been born of the Spirit? Harvesticator, do you know Christ Jesus as your Savior? If you do, death has no eternal victory in your life. You win. When you die, you win. Pray with me. Lord, I agree that our life is short. And Lord, even the secular voices in this world acknowledge that truth. But Lord, we as a church confess the truth that life is short, but eternity with you is long. Forever is long. And Lord, I praise you for stepping into this world of vanity, stepping into this world where death reigned and you even died yourself in order to conquer death. You were raised on the third day. We believe, Lord. And God, for those in this room who know you, have, who have new life in Christ Jesus, would you give meaning and purpose and fresh power to go to work tomorrow and to serve you with everything that we have, knowing that it's not meaningless because our work for you is not in vain. 
Give give us energy and purpose to serve our children and our church. And Lord, even if our very lives are lost this week, even if we die, we win. We're with you for eternity. Praise God. Praise Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing to him.